Welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Mark Kaufman over there. That's Dan Fishback over there. And today we're doing something a little different, aren't we? We Dan? are. We are. I'm not quite sure why we decided to do this, although you encouraged it because someone told you that would be a good idea. So we'll see. We'll find out just how good an idea this is. We will yeah, find out. an idea? Well, <laughs> today's idea is we're going to call it theater questions to each other. And what, what an elegantly phrased It's a working title, title right It's now. a working title. But Mark and I are going to ask each other some questions about the theater, and hopefully it'll spark some witty, interesting banter between the two of us, and and maybe we'll see what comes of it here. We really don't have any idea what the other is going to ask, and that'll be part of the fun of it, we hope. But all of the questions will be related to theater and our opinions in yes. one way or another. Yes. So and it's it's actually our way of getting to know each other a little bit better, even though we know right. each other fairly well. There might be some, some things we haven't uh, discussed about the world of theater. So that's yes. interesting. So and we of don't course, have a theater artist of yeah. note. We have us. That's the bottom line. Of course, today's podcast sponsored by the original cast of The Black Crook in 1866. So. <laughs> yeah, are any of them still around, Dan? <laughs> what was The Black Crook? Why don't you explain <clears throat> a little bit about a Well, The Black Crook is, is often considered to be the very beginnings of the integrated musical. It was the, it was the first time that there was an actual story or a, or a book to a musical. I mean, it was very simple. It was a sort of a loosely based on the legend of Faust back in 1866, but it did have a story nonetheless, as opposed to sort of a hodgepodge of music that was unrelated to any kind of a, of a story. So, so something that developed beyond simply a review format. That's right. That's right. So we're very proud to have them as our sponsors today. The original Thank cast. you all. Thank you, original <clears throat> cast, wherever you And may whoever be. you are. I don't know who they actually are. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to begin. Go ahead. I have a question for Daniel. Yeah. My first question is, as you were growing up as a mm. young fella mm. and becoming interested in theater, who were the playwrights, the plays that influenced you or the playwrights that you particularly gravitated to that inspired you to want to be involved in the world of theater? Yeah. Good question. I would say... First and foremost, Arthur Miller for me, because he was incredibly accessible. He wrote stories that were based you know, here in America. They were interesting stories. And they were, when I was growing up, I was studying acting. And although I was very young at the time, certainly too young to be in most of, of Miller's plays, he was somebody that, that I just fell in love with as a writer. So, so certainly he would be one and the other, and this is perhaps a little bit more out there for a, for a young person is Anton Chekhov. I gained a great appreciation for Chekhov's plays through my high school theater teacher, Ted Walsh. And we spent a lot of time studying Chekhov and acting Chekhov. And I was fortunate enough to act in a couple of Chekhov one acts and eventually got to play Uncle Gaev in the Cherry Orchard, which was... Something age appropriate at any rate. Well, not really. <laughs> I mean, Uncle Gaev was... No, Gaev's got to be in his 50s. At least, at least in his 50s. And I was about 17 at the time. <laughs> Now, are you asking strictly playwrights or well, any, talking? any, any writers, you know, the, the, the material that came from certain voices right. that you 
really so and and then as he became more accessible to me because I understood more of the language, I think Shakespeare. One, because we sort of had to be when you're a student in high school, they teach you Shakespeare, at least they did me. And as he became more accessible, I really fell in love with particularly his comedies, which I, I got a good kick out of, and at least one or two of his tragedies. Uh, King Lear certainly being one of the shows that affected me the most as a young person, I think because of the prospect of seeing your parents' age. For whatever reason, I identified not that my father was as mad or is as mad as King Lear. <laughs> he isn't. For no, anybody, he is, anybody out there, he's not. He's a no, very he, sane man as far as I sane. can tell. Yeah. But it spoke to me, and, and, and several of his characters did. So that is the long answer to your to your question, mm-hmm. which, which could have been answered like, with a list. Well, mentioning King Lear, I was very fortunate in, I guess it was high school or, or junior high, I lived, uh, grew up in New Jersey, and there was the Shakespeare Globe Theater just up in, in Connecticut. I forget oh, the yeah. name of it, and it burned down just a couple of years ago, very sadly. But went up there to see a production of King Lear that starred Morris Karnofsky. Oh, my goodness. Who was, you know, there, rather aged. He had been part of the group theater back in the 1930s, and still had it in him to give a great performance. And that Wow. That was an introductory production of Shakespeare for me, and I loved it. It was great. I didn't get to Shakespeare wow. until my until college. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about it. the language was daunting for me in high school. Sure, I was reading other other things. Neil Simon, I should also mention, appealed to me a great deal in high school because again, he was accessible. It was really funny stuff, and I was like a good a good laugh. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, Simon was certainly at the height of his career when I was reading him and it was good fun too. So how about you other than Shakespeare? Well, I, as opposed to, you know, you're, well, Arthur Miller starting with American playwright, all of my influences were European, I mm. have to say. My high school teacher, Jerome Hurley, we had a class in theater arts and we had this great big book given to us, I think Masters of Modern Theater. And it was Maxim Gorky's The Lower Depths. Oh, wow. And Ibsen, we read Wild Duck sure. and Enemy of the People. And it wasn't so much Gorky. I can't say that he was a huge influence. At that at that age, I found <laughs> that play very boring and very depressing. And it is both of those things, but yeah. it's valuable in the canon of world theater. But Ibsen certainly was someone that I, in terms of dealing with thematic content, he really brought that home to me. And I You thought, were reading Ibsen in high school. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah, see, I didn't get to Ibsen until college. Which was great. And I started a little bit in high school because I saw a production, I forget what play, but Harold Pinter. Oh, I sure. really thought this guy is was just crazy because you have scenes and plays long of characters who really aren't, for the most part, talking about what the point is. They're right. talking around it and about other things, and you get to understand what's really going on. I thought that was, it just kind of opened my eyes in terms of what's possible with character and dialogue and, and dramatic writing. That's so, so interesting. He's a huge, huge influence. That's so interesting because he's an incredibly complex writer to be enamored of at such a young age. The other one I need to mention because I've, I forgot about him is Eugene Ionesco, who I was introduced to in high school, who is an absurdist playwright for those, for those who don't know. And I was really into sarcasm and, and absurdity. Uh, you? No. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And that was uh, just a sarcastic school. comment, by the way, everybody. I know. And we did a production of The Bald Soprano, which was great fun and lots of sort of non sequitur, absurdist humor. And I understand how that would appeal to you. We also we had a Bald Soprano in that book, that the Masters oh, of really? Drama. Yeah. We read it and I walked away cold. I just really? thought, well, this simply makes no sense. <laughs> 
that was and the if the point is though. if the point is absurdity yeah just the absurdity of 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 modern life at that point or domestic life you could have made that point in five minutes why are we watching something that's 90 minutes long <laughs> i was what? saying okay eugene i got it really just more non sequiturs eh? <laughs> yeah indeed all right so here's my question and i'll give you my first question to you excellent we know how society influences the theater, but in your experience, have you seen theater actually influence society? Well, I don't want to take too long to mull this over. I'll edit the I... mulling over. <laughs> out. Theater influenced society. Well, the old saw is that art is a reflection of nature. Right. In other words, what's happening in the world is usually reflected onto the stage and most you know certainly you can going back to arthur miller he wrote the crucible which was in its way a reflection of the witch hunts and, and all that stuff in the 50s although arthur miller has always said that wasn't what was on his mind you can't help but believe he was influenced right. by what was happening in the world and i think a lot of a lot of playwrights you think of now the play you just saw the other night what the constitution means to me yeah certainly that was written because of what's been happening in the political world and the 19, you know, 2019, 2020, where we are. So and I by think the way, speak, I have to, I have to point this out because it's sure. a, it's a, it's a funny coincidence that in what the constitution means to me, she actually talks about the fact that a crucible is a ceramic pot or container where you put mixed stuff together and it reaches incredibly high temperatures. Mm -hmm. So that is a crucible. I it just, Oh, sure. I never thought about what an actual crucible was. That's, that's okay, good, anyway. That's a good thing. Thank you. Okay. Um, and certainly, obviously, reflective of what's going on in that play. Indeed. It seems more to me that it's the other way because people are influenced and inspired by what's happening in the world, whether it be the world of music. School of Rock wouldn't have happened without the music developing the way it did. Right. It's very, it's very difficult for me to think of a situation where theater is the leader in terms of influencing society. All I can say is that the techniques of theater certainly have influenced other theater artists. I mean, we're all inspired by our theater heroes, either the writers, directors, scene designers, whatever art or craft that you're involved in in the world of theater. And we, we look to those inspirational figures and, well, we become crucibles of all that information. How about that? Indeed. That's uh, a throwback reference. So I honestly, I don't know. Is there anything you can think of where theater? You know, it's interesting. As I was thinking of the question, very, very few things. I, I think I always go back to thinking about, although I wasn't around to see the original production, a show like Hair, for instance, which is I know is not your favorite show, but I think that Hair must have helped explain the anti-war movement to the Broadway going audience. Well, yeah. yes, that makes sense. Sure. You know, something like that. I, I think so. Maybe, maybe it didn't, it didn't. Uh... Well, maybe what theater does is <clears throat> clarify. Okay. In other words, you can have a lot of different elements and we can look at our political world right now in the world of media and all of that and just see so much chaos and deliberate misinformation and everyone claiming that, you know, what they're saying is right and what's being reported is fake. And there are a lot of people, particularly if you get your news from only one source, that you think, oh, well, I know what the truth is, and they don't. And where's the clarity in all of that that we can all agree upon? 
there's no clarity. But there was a play in New York just this last year about, and I forget the title of it, it was up for Tony's. Bertie Carvel won a Tony oh, um, supporting actor for playing Rupert Murdoch. And it was about the development of Murdoch's media empire. And so you got a very close look on that man and the psychology. Yeah, it was called Inc. Inc. Exactly. Yeah. The psychology from which his empire and kind of singular vision was built. Right. And maybe that helps a wider audience if anyone gets to see it. Of course, it's a play. Who goes to plays? But you should. And that might offer some, some clarification, mm. at least on that angle of media right. understanding. Of yeah, it. sure. So there's that. All right. Uh, next question for you. Thinking back, there have been a lot of really interesting bomb shows that have, mm. that have opened on Broadway. Is there any original bomb show that you saw that you're glad you saw or sorry that you missed? Ooh, good question. Now, when you say bomb show, are you talking about sort of critical bomb or are you talking about uh, critical finance? Well, I, I would say critical bomb. I would say something where people said, you know, this is terrible, but uh, you kind of wish you'd seen it anyway, or you did see. Yeah, that's, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> let me, I'm going to have to think about this one. I would have loved to see, and, and it's not that long ago, Spider-Man turn off the dark. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there was so much chaos surrounding that show that it w- must have been like watching a car wreck. And there's something. <laughs> Well, and having Julie Taymor's vision then being diverted because that was failing and she yeah. getting fired and mm. all the, the, the behind the scenes nonsense and they brought someone else in and redirected. It actually ran for a while. It did run, it for, run for a it, year. Or it year did plus. run for a good while and, right. and at least, and I never got to see it. I would also have, although now it's sort of become a cult classic, I would have loved to have seen Carrie. I was there opening night. No. I saw Were you Carrie. really? I was. I sat. I went with an actress friend who may be one of our guests in the near future, so I won't mention All her right. name yet okay. tease it. But we, we sat together. We were actually upstairs. I think we were in the like second row of the balcony. And oh. on the stairs sitting next to me was choreographer Debbie Allen. Oh, my God. Who choreographed the show. And as they were going through it, number after number, and the numbers were just kind of wild and strange. It was a very incoherent show. And I hear they've done work on it, and it's been produced again. I mean, they've been in New York. There are people who think actually the show has really improved. I haven't seen the revised oh, version. Interesting. But as it debuted on New York, there was a lot of problems, believe me. The lead gal, I forget her name. She was very good. Betty Buckley playing the mother was very good. There yeah. were a few good songs, but there was a lot of chaos on stage and a lot that didn't make sense. And, of That's course, Debbie Allen was there every number cheering on her dancers and her ensemble. And I just felt so bad for her. Mm, <laughs> I sat yeah. there thinking, you know, she's into it. She's supporting her cast. God love her. And, it was and just she probably flaw. knows yeah. in her heart that the show just doesn't work. Yeah. The other two, I, while you were talking, I was listening intently, but also else, of course. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could <laughs> do two things new? at once, once in a while. I would have loved to have seen Allegro in 1947, which is mm. Rodgers and Hammerstein's notorious flop, but a highly experimental show that pushed a lot of boundaries in what was possible on stage. I would have liked to have seen that. By the way, that show, interestingly enough, first show to be directed by a woman, Agnes DeMille, first mm. uh, Broadway musical. Anyway, and, and I would also have loved, loved to see Merrily We Roll Along, the original. 
which is, was another yes, flop. Well, I, close I after. was there too. You I were there. Second and, preview. And you also auditioned for that show, I if I'm not mistaken. for that show. Yeah. Was called back a couple times. Joanna Merlin, the casting director, was absolutely lovely. Paul Gemignani, the musical director I auditioned for, was great. I won't go into what the whole process was, but it was it was fun to be there and fun to work in front of those people and be coached by them and a wonderful experience. Uh-huh. And then the second preview was sitting there watching it thinking, gee whiz, how Prince kind of didn't get his head around this show, which he willingly admits. But he does. the score is yeah. superb and, you know, at least we have that. We've got that. It's and, and there's a great documentary about it too that's out called Best Thing That Never Could Have Happened. Best Worst Thing. Excuse me, Best Worst Thing That Never Could Have Happened. And it's a documentary by Lonnie Price. Lonnie Price, who of course played Charlie originally, and he he has original footage from from back in the show and, and just talking about the process and it's actually a very cool documentary. They can still get it on Netflix. I'll just throw in. I'm glad I saw Carrie. It was a very interesting night to yeah. be in the theater. And the, the one bombshell I wish I had seen was a little play called Moose Murders, which probably oh. got the worst reviews of any play in the history of theater. <laughs> it lasted like three nights. It was a previewing in New York for a couple of weeks. I was there, but I, the word on the street was just terrible. It starred Eva Arden, if you remember oh my, Eva yeah. Arden from the Mothers-in-Law TV series and on radio back in the 40s as Our Miss Brooks, if anybody goes back that far. And I wish I had seen that. It's sort of one of the notorious bombs. Wow. Sort of a 10 Little Indians kind of thing from what I get from it. So, Dan, next question. Ticket prices on Broadway have increased exponentially even over the last 10 years, if not certainly last 30 years. I remember the days where you could see a Broadway show for $12 and have an orchestra seat. I go back that far. But even in the 80s, 25 bucks, you could see a show $30. And now a a musical starts at around $180. And a play starts at around $160, upwards of there. It certainly is having its impact possibly on audience and who gets to see theater. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think it started probably in the 90s, in the, in, in the mid 90s, where prices sort of rocketed from about you know 30 or 50 dollars way up to you know 75, 80 dollars. I remember the revival of Showboat in 1994, maybe. I remember paying 75 dollars a ticket to that show hmm. and thinking that that was absolutely insane. Little did I know that, you know, another 10 years later, I'd be paying double that. Well, more than double, sure. More than double that. My my problem is with it is obviously financial, but also theater is now, has become again, an upper class amusement. Like it was a long time ago when it was more you know, about opera and more operetta and, and well, and people would get dressed and go people to the would theater. Dress it up was and go for to that the group of people. Yeah. It's become inhospitable to young people, to people who aren't particularly wealthy. And, and I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem for an art form that does spe- try to speak to the masses to not have the masses be able to see it. I think well, that's, that's a it. If, if One of the principles of theater is, well, we were talking before about influence society or society influencing it right. to get visions of theater artists and hear what they have to say on a particular topic. For people in general not to have that experience open to them because they can't afford it is too bad. Fortunately, out here, I'm a subscriber to the Amundsen season, and that's now you can get a season ticket five shows for like $250, which is an incredible bargain. 
So, yeah. you know, get out of New York and theater is a little bit more accessible, which is great. Yeah. Just costs in New York and they've already been rising. I remember Hal Prince complaining about it back in the 1970s. But it's interesting because it's almost it's almost a circular issue because they keep producing shows with more and more spectacle and, and bigger and bigger sets and more and more costs and they become sort of more impressive looking. And theater people, people involved in the art of theater need to earn a living. And there is that too. Of course, we have to pay, you know, pay our actors a reasonable wages. So it's, I don't know what the answer is. I think that, that some of the shows, Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen, and actually starting back with Rent, where they sort of introduced the concept of the lottery to make tickets, sure. uh, some tickets accessible right. to people who couldn't afford to pay. You know, what obviously the message of Rent is sort of the bohemian lifestyle, and it didn't make sense to be charging $100 a ticket to <laughs> you know, people. Right. Yeah, the people who might really be interested in seeing that are people yeah, who are living right. that lifestyle. That's right. right. So uh, hopefully there's, there's an answer. I don't I don't know what it is, but it's gotten completely insane. And I mean, rear balcony seats are, you know, at $200 for certain shows are are just ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. My next question to you is a little bit of a long one, but it's, I think it comes around. So recently there was an opinion piece written in the New York Times about West Side Story apropos of the of the current Broadway revival. It was written by a woman of, of Puerto Rican descent. And the headline was, Let West Side Story and Its Stereotypes Die. No question on what she feels about West Side Story. <laughs> My question to you, though, is this. So Broadway will, will likely continue to revive plays whose themes and storylines, when viewed through a modern-day lens, may be considered offensive, for lack of a better word. Where do you suppose the balance between honoring the shows of yesteryear and honoring the feelings of today lies? I know that's a, that's a loaded question with a whole lot of oh, it's very know, simple. answers. There's, there's nothing complex about it at all. Yeah. If you as a, a director or a producer, you have to, I always go back to the material because the material, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Mm-hmm. We start there. And our, our jobs as directors, and we both do that, and producers, which I've done a little, you've done a little, the idea is to illuminate what the authors intended. So usually the first production of a show is what most closely aligns with what the authors intended it to be. There are some cases where that's not entirely true, or it isn't quite delivered. I remember, boy, I've got to go back 30 years there was, uh, you know, the show Ballroom, mm-hmm. written by Marilyn Bergman and uh, Billy Goldenberg and and uh, them, and it was directed on Broadway by Michael Bennett, right. and it was a very flashy show. Dorothy Loudon starred. I saw it. She was she was terrific. It was loads of fun, but it was it was very flashy and dazzling as Michael Bennett could be. They did a bit of a revised version of it and rewrote some of the book and I think added a couple songs. And it was at the um, Long Beach Civet Light Opera about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, I think Charles Durning was the male lead. It was Vincent Gardini in New York. And I think Tyne Daly played the the lead. Oh, wow. The Dorothy Loudon part. And afterwards, I was some friends. I didn't know the, the Bergmans, Alan Miracle Bergman or Billy Goldenberg, but I talked after the show to Billy Goldenberg, and he said, you know what I thought the, the show lacked was heart. Michael Bennett was a genius, and it certainly played beautifully and all that, but really, really wanted to have a little bit more heart. And that's what they found in this production. That's what they wanted to get to. And I think they 
refined the show to focus more on that. So it's entirely possible that the Broadway production, which they liked but loved this one better, pointed the way that they needed to rewrite a little bit to find that. So that's interesting. But for the most part, what you're seeing are what the authors intend, because the director, if he's in tune with the authors, is putting the show up on stage that does illuminate the sense of it. We are in an age now where there are a a number of star directors who have a style or a kind of a grand idea that they like placing on top of material. And I don't think it always works. And that's certainly my my opinions are not, you know, not of the station or of the, or of the companies that produce us. They're merely my opinions. But I think sometimes the grand idea can kind of get in the way of what the material is. And anytime that I see a show that has been reimagined, I guess that's kind of how the, the words they put it in, is mounted on stage, I always kind of hope that the audience has seen a previous version that held true to what the authors intended so they can see that this is, this is an, a director's idea that takes the material in a different direction, that it doesn't necessarily fulfill the illumination of the material as it was intended, but what you're looking through is a lens of current political and social ideas that have been distilled down into a style and that's placed on top of the material but you should be able to at some, in some way separate those things because they aren't always in tune. They just don't always work together. One such example, gee, it's probably about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, there was a production of Titus Andronicus at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And the director was... I saw that. Well, you, Trez- actually, I saw that production with you. We went together. That's yeah. right, we did. Uh, Darko Treznik directed yep. it. Yep. And since he directed a lot of things on Broadway, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which mm-hmm. worked very well, but this you know, Titus Andronicus, the revenge tragedy, the one revenge tragedy that Shakespeare writes, it's a, a dark, crazy play. And the first music that piped up as before right. the play began was Zero Mostel singing comedy tonight. And I knew I was in the wrong hands <laughs> at that moment. And at one point, Titus, to save his daughter's life, chops off his hand <laughs> to deliver to the emperor right. as a sacrifice. And up comes the Beatles singing, I want to hold your hand. And the audience was really mostly, there were some nervous chuckles, but a lot of stunned silence. And I remember there, was, there were two women, uh, older ladies who were sitting a few seats down from us, and they had seen us, I guess, flopping in our chairs <laughs> frustratedly <laughs> as, we were, as the play was unfolding. They said, we kind of think you've seen this play before. Is this how it should be? And of course, the answer was, well, no, this is, the, this is taking things in a direction that Shakespeare, of course, would never have even thought of, and it doesn't really serve the material, but it's what this director just decided to do with the play, and there you have it. But what so, about this notion of, of a play being, or a, a musical, whatever it is, being offensive the second time round? Well, offensive, that's an interesting word. It depends on mm-hmm. what one is offended by. I have not seen the new production of Oklahoma, but I hear there are some very strange things that happen in it. And without giving too much away, if people want to go see it, at the point that uh, Judd Fry, the villain of the piece, dies, the uh, hero and heroine, Curly and Laurie, are more than splattered with blood. 
and that blood stays on them to the end of the play. And there's still about 15, 20 minutes of show left. No one brings her a towel to mop off her wedding dress. No <laughs> one thinks that maybe they don't want to be covered in blood. They just do that. And of course, there's a, a, a socio-political statement being made by that. And Judd Fry is being portrayed as perhaps not the villain we've, the, the two-dimensional villain that was originally intended that there was more of a human being there and the law, his loss of life is more significant in a humane way. And there, you know, it feels like more themes are being brought in than the material itself supplies. And yeah, some no, people are going to go for that. And other people are going to say, <clears throat> what happened here? <laughs> so I don't granted, know how offensive granted, that is. It may offend theatrical yeah. sensibilities more than being outright offensive. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I think what this particular author was suggesting was that, that West Side Story presents offensive stereotypes of Puerto Ricans. And so we should, you know, now we've got, of course, the Broadway revival. We've got several productions that happened on the 100th anniversary mm-hmm. of Leonard Bernstein's birthday. And we have the film upcoming, the Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner film coming up. Right. And part of the reason that this particular author was offended, and she mentions in her article, is that many of the actors who have portrayed these characters have actually not been of Latin descent at all over the years. Uh, and in, that goes, that's a tradition that goes way back. That's a tradition that goes way I mean, back. back. in the you 50s, you think. Carol Lawrence, I mean, was... Well, she was Maria, um, of course, Maria and, and, and going back to the original production, but think of other shows as well. Like, oh, no doubt. No you know, doubt. The King and I, Yul Brynner was sort of Mongolian descent. Right. You think of Flower Drum Song, which very few people do, but uh, Larry Blyden, was the original leading leading man in right. that show. Sure. And that was, you know, Jack Sue played it in the movie and appropriately cast because, yes, Jack Sue was Asian. Jack Sue was in the original production but didn't have that role. So there's been a lot yeah, of that sure. going on for years. Casting, years. yeah, casting decisions for sure. But look at let's look at a show like Carousel, right? So there there is a contingency of, of theatergoers out there who say that, that Carousel should not be reproduced because it depicts violence against a woman. Oh, yes, I have a, a friend who used to call it the wife-beating musical. The wife-beating musical, right, exactly. Right. So where does that opinion lie, or how, how do we take that voice? Well, my and feeling is with, that it yeah. is, as now we get into those things that you know were current 70 years ago, right. are now period pieces. I think you can present those shows, and I think you can do Carousel as this is what the time was. Right. This is how people behaved. And maybe a very helpful little director's note in the playbill that says we're producing this because we want to see, we want you to see how things were. Think about how things have changed since, sure. and that can be valuable. So, and as far as this yeah. West Side Story goes, Stephen Sondheim, who is, I think, the only living creator of that show left, yeah. has already signed off that he likes the production. So right. good for him, and I think he likes, his philosophy is that with time, new ideas come. And the exciting thing about theater is no show is frozen in time. There's always a new a new right. viewpoint that can be taken into the world of the show. And he's happy for people to be creative. So there's that. Yeah, it, it's also hard for, for me personally. I mean, I'm obviously not of Latin descent, and, and I can't speak to this woman's particular perspective on it. But for me, if I get a perspective on this as, as a musical theater aficionado and, and professional, perhaps... It's of value to me to see West Side Story because of what it did for the American musical and because of the groundbreaking and still truly gorgeous 
score in particular that that show has. The, the Leonard mm-hmm. Bernstein music in that show, to me, is second to nearly nothing. I think it may be the greatest score ever composed to a Broadway musical. Well, I'll tell you, I saw the last revival, not this one, but the one where mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda, get that mm-hmm. right, he translated the scenes of the sharks. Right, I saw that too. Uh, the one in, that in, Arthur Lawrence directed. Yeah, Arthur Lawrence directed. Yeah. And actually, to, to be quite honest, the thing I liked best about that production at the Palace Theater on Broadway was hearing that score played by an orchestra in a theater. Absolutely. Because it's, the music is so glorious that you just are, are, it's transcendent, and you're just kind of taken away from that, regardless of what else is going on stage. Yeah. And that show had its pluses and minuses. I wouldn't say it was a great production. There were some very good things about it. But hearing that score was, uh, you know, live. There, yeah. There's nothing like it. It was a, like If I it. recall, the, the production itself was very long for some reason. It felt... It felt a little endless. <laughs> I, I mean, Arthur Lawrence at the time, I think, was you know ninety five or whatever, and he was directing it, and mm. so I, maybe he mm-hmm. he was thinking a little more slowly than he might have mm-hmm. you know, fifty years. Well, ago. maybe we have time for one more, just quick yeah. question. Go, go ahead. If How about a quick, some yeah, couple got, rapid fire ones? Here's a rapid fire question. Ready? Yeah. Starlight Express or a root canal? Oh my god! <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to go with a root canal. I really, I can't stand Starlight Express. I find it silly and dumb. And and I know you. Question. Have you ever seen a production? Yes. Oh, you did? Yes, I have. I saw the original production. <laughs> there goes my my whole theory. Okay. Yeah, no, but 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 I would like to turn this around because Mark is actually a big fan of Starlight Express. I'll tell you what, I've seen two productions. The Broadway production, 1980, you want to say six? I think it's around. Like it's the that. same year as Les Miserables because the, the scene designer did both. And I remember him winning the Tony for Les Miserables and getting up on stage and saying, Thanks, but you got this wrong. Starlight is the set. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a remarkable, it was a remarkable looking production. It was just spectacular with like three or four levels and a bridge that raised and lowered and tilted and they skated all around it. As far as spectacle, it was sort of like the Cirque du Soleil of Broadway shows. And it's when Broadway spectacle had really exploded with Andrew Lloyd Webber shows principally. But it was great to watch. The cast was committed and I found it tuneful and just a lot of fun. I mean, I kind of, I took my analytical hat off and just enjoyed it. And I don't do that very often. And yeah. the other production, then I saw it in London, which was the original production in 1993, I think mm-hmm. is when I was there. And I was there at a student matinee. It was the only time I could go to see it. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to see what the original production was. Not nearly as technically complex the set didn't represent all of England, like the New York production represented all of the United States where they're skating all around. But the it was a student matinee production and the students were so excited to see this, they literally screamed approval at every number and the sense that theater could so inspire these kids who probably, and it was students, so they probably hadn't seen a lot of theater, but they were so taken away by the experience that it was an inspiring afternoon to see that that something possibly silly, but you know, somewhat tuneful with some spectacle could could raise these kids' spirits and make them become enthusiastic about being in a theater. And that afternoon I will never forget because it's been very rare where I sat in a show and just number after number, and I could tell that the cast was kind of surprised. 
because they do the show eight times a week and they think we're doing Starlight Express, but we're getting a paycheck. That's great. I'm glad I'm, I have a career, but you know, it's not, it, it ain't West Side Story clearly. But it, when they came out for the curtain call and they, it was this cheering standing ovation, you could see they were all visibly moved. And that was really something. And that only happens in the live theater. You should have seen them howling at my root canal. You know, ladies and gentlemen, right here, okay. we're here all week. So that's funny because my next question to you was, what's your favorite guilty pleasure show? Yeah, and, and <laughs> I think maybe we just mentioned it. That was probably well, Starlight I like, Express. I also, yeah. I also like chess. I know a lot of people think that's I like that's chess. Kind chess of just has some great music to it. I do. I mean, I think that's tuneful. I certainly, for ABBA, I prefer it to Mamma Mia. Oh, yeah. And there's more substance. The New York production of chess, it was quite different apparently from what was originally staged in London. I think Michael Bennett had directed it in London. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I think so. I think it was one of the last things he directed, I think. Yeah. Someone can fact check me on that. Uh, uh, but in New York, there, there was these great, you know, columns that were all, it was beautifully staged, sort of moving around like on a chessboard. But it was very well, uh, beautifully acted. David Carroll, who you oh, know, yeah. was not going to be around a whole lot longer, right. unfortunately, was wonderful as Anatoly. And Judy Kuhn was terrific as Florence. So it, it certainly had its pluses. I enjoyed that show very much. Last question for you. Mm -hmm. Favorite show of the last 10 years? So this would be the the teens, <laughs> the, the decade of the, the teens. last ten years would be 2010 to 2020. Ten years. I'll expand it to 20 years. How about that? Last, <laughs> That's I mean, not helping. Mark's, Mark's mind is. See, I just go back. Coming out of Mark. Well, I just my favorite shows go back to the 19 teens. Right. You know, if anything, I think clearly I've been born in the wrong decade. Yeah. My favorite show. Okay, well, I'm going to answer mine while you're I, thinking of yours. I just have no idea. No, I, I'm going to say. I mean, there are things that I like, but there's nothing that has been. I can't think of anything where I thought, boy, am I glad I was witness really? to that. Yeah. To me, it was it was the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. I found oh, uh -huh. that show to be absolutely stunning. It was transformative to me as a director in how a particular how a story could be told. I thought the design was gorgeous. I thought the acting was gorgeous. I saw it in London, and it's where I really sort of first fell in love with the director, Marianne Elliott's work. She, of course, has done since then, or she did War Horse before then, and is now doing the revival of Company, the gender-reversed revival of Company, which I also saw in London mm -hmm. and was not a fan of, but that's perhaps the story for another podcast. Yeah, maybe that's an interesting idea we can talk about. Yeah. Shows we haven't liked and, and why, rather than just saying, <laughs> I didn't like it. That podcast may be long. <laughs> it could be long, too, yeah. <laughs> you know, as you're saying that, I think the shows that I've been most interested in, frankly, are the Matthew Bourne ballets. Oh, sure. They just brought uh, Swan, Swan Lake, Lake through again. Here, yeah. Cinderella was here. And my favorite of the, the lot was The Red Shoes. Oh, right. Which I think was a year ago or two years ago yeah. out here in Los Angeles at the Amundsen. And just his, his whole I, sense of storytelling through dance, I don't know that there are many choreographers who understand storytelling as well as Matthew Bourne and, and carries it off so beautifully. You and should see Jason Bourne, Swan Lake. Jason much, much Bourne, more, uh, the Bourne identity. That's right. It's a, it's a much more active shooter scenario. On I have stage. a feeling that yeah. this half hour to curtain is more like 40 minutes to curtain. Yeah, we've, we've probably gone over. So maybe um, we'll ring the curtain down, but this was, uh, I'm glad we had this discussion. This was fun. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully we, we you enjoyed listening to it, you out there in Radio Land. In Radio Land. Podcast next, Land. Yeah, we'll be back next month with an actual theater the artist, theater artist of, of note. note. As, yeah. as opposed to us theater artists of... Unknown. My note my note today is a B flat. Yes, the B, B Arthur. So thank you very much for listening and we will see you next month. 
This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Dan Fishback over there. That's Mark Kaufman over there. Half Hour to Curtain is produced by the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio. Theme music by Anthony Luca. For more information about the podcast, visit us at www.halfhourtocurtain.com. For more information about the Musical Theater Studio, visit us at www.lamts.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.